Who is this man? This is the great question that drives the Gospel of Mark and that now at its climax can be put off or evaded no longer. One way or another, we must, as we survey Jesus' final moments, decide who is this man? Who is he, really? The question is put to us here in Mark chapter 15, the account that we've just read, by a striking aspect of the way Mark tells the story. At the beginning and the end of his, count of, Je- of his account of Jesus' actual crucifixion, we have two declarations of Jesus' identity by Roman soldiers involved in his killing. At the beginning, in verses 16 to 20, as the company of Roman soldiers, which means at least a few hundred individuals, as they surround Jesus and abuse him, they sarcastically call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! In their view, that is, Jesus is nothing more than a pathetic pretender to power and kingship, a shameful, impotent weakling who deserves nothing more than mockery. At the other end of the account, however, in verse 39, a Roman centurion standing before Jesus unexpectedly declares, surely this man was the son of God. And we are invited to choose between these two possibilities. Is the way Jesus meets his end the final proof that he bit off rather more than he could chew, that he overreached and so must be judged a failure? Or is it somehow the moment that it becomes clear that he is indeed who he claimed to be? These are actually the only two options left. Because at the end of the day, if Jesus is not, in fact, who he clearly claimed to be, the King, the Messiah, the Son of God, then he is a liar or a fool. And while we might not like the way he's treated, I'm sure you don't, we must admit that, frankly, he brought it on himself. So the options the Romans give us are the only ones we're left with. Was Jesus at best a tragically mistaken fool and at worst a disgraceful pretender? Or was he in fact the son of God, the human being in whom the purposes of God are now uniquely focused? Now, if we just step back for a second, it must be said that the first option is far more likely However much we might have been impressed by things Jesus did and said, surely we must acknowledge that his claims about his identity kind of run aground on what actually ends up happening to him. Because if there was a God, and if he really was uniquely committed to this man Jesus, would he really let this happen to him? Would he really let him die and with such disgrace? He is mocked as a pretend king as the soldiers dress him up like a plaything but with a good dose of physical assault. He is spat on, 
abused, beaten, stripped naked, robbed of everything he owns, laughed at, and then he is brutally murdered, being subjected to a horrific flogging, followed by a slow, agonising death hanging from his pierced hands and feet. Can we really believe that that is something God would allow? In fact, more than that, that that was something God himself would experience? Because make no mistake, the title Son of God means much more than that Jesus is just a king, a special human being. This title is not a common one in Mark. And in the two previous occurrences, in chapter 1 at Jesus' baptism and in chapter 9 on the Mount of Transfiguration, the speaker is God himself saying, this is my son whom I love. So to believe that, as the centurion puts it, Jesus is the son of God, is to believe that he had a unique and perfect relationship with God as his father, and indeed that he himself is an essential part of the answer to the question of who God is. So can we really honestly believe that God would allow this if it was true? That this would be something that God endured, that God was involved in? It's preposterous, isn't it? Because what kind of God would that be? The ridiculous of this thought is actually felt acutely by Islam, which insists that this could not possibly happen, that the very idea that God would let a prophet suffer like this is blasphemous. We must admit, actually, that logically it's far more likely that, their ugly cruelty aside, those who stood around Jesus while he hung on the cross making fun of him, they basically had it right. We might not like the way the criminals hanging beside him mock him or the way the chief priests and teachers of the law laugh in verse 31 and derisively call out, he saved others but he can't save himself. But we have to admit, don't we, that they're being fairly reasonable when they say, let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Perhaps if he had come down, at that moment, we could believe it. We could see it all as a test of faith for us and for everyone to see who would give up on God in the face of such apparent humiliation. But he didn't come down and he didn't save himself. So can we really believe he was the son of God? But there is a striking thing about the two declarations by the Romans, which we should notice before we finish with Jesus. And the striking thing is this. They come in the wrong order. The two declarations come in the wrong order. You see, you'd expect them to be the other way around. You would expect the judgment that Jesus was a joke and a failure, you'd expect that to come at the end after he has died, after all chance of a divine intervention is over. And you would expect the confession that he was indeed who he claimed to be, the Son of God, to come at the beginning, 
when there is still hope. Not afterwards when the killing has succeeded. But that is precisely what happens. The declaration of the centurion comes not despite Jesus' death, but actually inspired by it. Verse 39 is very important. When the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Do you notice how it's emphasised? That he is right there in front of Jesus, hearing him, watching how he dies. And it is this that leads him to confess Jesus as the son of God. It is precisely the dying of Jesus, the dying of Jesus, that for the centurion, the pagan Roman centurion, makes the truth clear. He was indeed the son of God. And that's unexpected. It's unexpected. And it should make us ask, what was it exactly that he saw? Because his reaction suggests that maybe we've missed something, something important. So what was it? What was it about the dying of Jesus that changed his mind? Well, obviously, as the text says, it has something to do with his final cry. But that wasn't all the centurion had witnessed, of course. He must at least have been conscious of the unearthly darkness that enveloped the land in those last hours. I mean, how could he, how could anyone not be unsettled by that, by that eerie coincidence? How could it not feel like the judgment of God? What else might have stood out to the centurion about the dying of Jesus? Mark gives us only a few glimpses, actually, of Jesus himself in these verses. But they paint a powerful picture. Looking back a little, there is that moment in verse 23 where Jesus is offered wine mixed with myrrh and he refuses it. It's actually kind of hard to work out what is exactly going on here. There is some evidence that this was a practice designed to induce a state of drunkenness and so to ease the pain when somebody was being crucified. But it's not completely clear that that was going on. It could also be that this is just a bitter and unpleasant drink and it's part of the mockery that Jesus has to endure. Either way, though, his refusal to take it points to a kind of focus in him, a refusal to be distracted from what is going on. He is not simply passive in what he is experiencing. He is still, in a really important way, free. He's making meaningful choices about how he will go through his ordeal. Then, of course, there are the last words Mark records in verse 34 when Jesus cries out in Aramaic the first line of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a terrifying moment. As Jesus gives voice to the deepest anguish of his heart and shows that for him the most horrifying thing about his experience is not the nails or the blood, nor his life slipping away from him in ragged breaths, 
nor the nakedness and shame, nor the loneliness and fear, but the sense of being abandoned by his Father, his God, whom he had loved and served all his days, who was the goal of his life, the strength of his hands, the delight of his mind, the joy of his heart. That loss, that abandonment, is all he cares about at this final moment. All else has faded from his view and his eyes are fixed solely on that one dreadful thing. And then finally, there is the way Jesus lets go of life. With a loud cry, verse 37, Jesus breathed his last. His last breath, that is, is uttered as a shout. A loud cry is a great shout. That's actually significant because it wasn't the normal way in which crucifixion came to an end. Crucifixion produced death by asphyxiation so that the final breath would mostly be barely perceptible. But Jesus shouts... What is this shout? Is it a shout of grief, of sadness, of triumph? Perhaps all of these. But what it points to is that he is, he's in control. To the very end. At the very end, no one snatches his life away from him. But he gives it up. In the conviction that that is his calling. Here, as at every point, Jesus is, in a profound sense, free. That is the dying of Jesus that the centurion saw. And what he saw led him to say what he did. And I think it's because what he saw in Jesus dying was the intensity of Jesus' relationship with God. What he saw in Jesus dying was a pain that was only possible as the pain of a person separated from one by whom he was loved and who he loved. It was the anguish of a son forsaken by his father, of a son called by his father to endure this forsakenness for the sake of others. Paradoxically, you see, the very way in which the dying Jesus experienced himself as abandoned by God, showed the centurion that he was indeed the son of God. For what he saw could not be fake. It was the suffering of one for whom all that mattered was his relationship with the father, so that nothing else about his death had any real power over him. Despite all the people surrounding him, heaping scorn and mockery on him and abusing his body for Jesus, this was a matter ultimately between him and his father. And that is why it was precisely the dying of Jesus that made the centurion confess that he was the son of God. To believe that, of course, is, as I mentioned before, world-changing. 
because it means that all our natural assumptions about God are wrong. And so all our natural assumptions about ourselves are wrong as well. It means that God himself, the creator and sustainer of the universe, who holds every moment of our lives in his hand, he has been intimately involved in suffering and the world we know in a shockingly, convulsingly disorienting way. And it means that this moment and nothing else must become the focus of our hopes and confidence for life. It is a thought that requires us to rebuild our universe from the ground up and to begin thinking and living again from a new vantage point, standing with the centurion in front of the cross. It's not a small step, to put it mildly. And yet, the question we ought to ask ourselves on Good Friday is whether our natural way of thinking and living can really stand up in the face of the dying of Jesus. Not just the death of Jesus. We're too used to the idea of Jesus' death. It's lost its edge. It's lost its, lost its sharpness for us. We all know it happened and we found ways to avoid it being troubling for us. But what about the dying of Jesus? His agony and passion, his focus and freedom, his faith. Can our natural thoughts about God and the world and the good life and what we should be doing, can they stand up in the face of that? Perhaps if we don't look at it properly, they will. We'll be able to kid ourselves that he was just a, a pathetic zealot who died passionately convinced of a delusion. But not if we look at it properly. Not if, like the centurion, we look at it honestly and squarely in the face. No, then, like the centurion, we will be compelled to see in the dying of Jesus the final proof of his identity and tremble before it as we confess that he was indeed the Son of God. Friends, this Good Friday, will you have the courage to look squarely at the dying of Jesus and let it completely rearrange the way you see the world. Amen.